Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I am your host, Joanna. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Joanna, and welcome back to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience podcast where we talk about everything resilience. So for today's topic, we're going to be talking about binge eating recovery and cultivating mindful eating with a special focus on body image as well. So eating disorders have been such a prevalent topic in society, and I feel like we just can't talk about it enough. So I'm really happy that we get to chat about this topic today and just bring about more awareness. So today, I'm so glad to be joined by by Bronnie Raycos to do that. Bronnie is a senior clinical psychologist who is passionate about delivering high quality evidence-based psychological interventions with clients. And she has worked in the public health system for 17 years across adult and child services in Western Australia and at the Institute of Psychiatry in London with adolescents in with depression. Um, that was definitely a mouthful to say. Um, hi, Bronnie. How are you today? I'm really good. Thanks, Joanna. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Firstly, I'd love to ask if you could introduce yourself a bit more with who you are and what it is you do. Yeah, so um, my name is Bronnie. Um, and first and foremost, I, um, I'm a mother of three beautiful um, children. Um, I also um, work as um, a clinical psychologist um, uh, specializing in the treatment of eating uh, disorders and um, body image disorders. Uh, and I've been working in that space for a very long time. Um, I'm also a clinical researcher and I have published lots of articles um, related to how we, I guess, improve treatment or understand how treatment works for patients with eating disorders. Beautiful. So how did you find yourself in this field of work? Uh, it was very uh, accidental and unintentional. Uh, what I'm really passionate about is actually um, delivering a sort of treatments or working um, in organisations um, that deliver the best possible treatments that we have available and work to improve on those uh, interventions. So the place that I've been working at within the public health system of Western Australia really focuses on um, how we can constantly kind of improve and uh, evaluate um, the interventions that we're offering to clients, not just with eating disorders, but those with depression and anxiety disorders and mood disorders such as bipolar disorder. So I was really passionate about working at that particular place. It's a very unique place. And we also um, develop sort of online um, uh, content so that people can access help really easily uh, when and where they need it. I applied for a job uh, in the anxiety and de depression stream um, and that role um, was filled by someone and was offered a position in the eating disorders team. So I just thought, well, why not? Let's give that a crack. And I have been there 
ever since. Um, and I suppose it's been a really surprising outcome for me how much I've enjoyed that and how much I've been able to contribute in that space as well. Lovely. And you've been in this industry for 17 years now. So I'd love to ask how you've seen sort of the public health system change in terms of its approach to eating disorders. Yeah. So um, uh, I, in, in addition to talking about the public system, I also work in the private sector. And when I first started working uh, in eating disorders, there were just very few services um, around that were in a position that could uh, that had the specialist skills to be able to to treat eating disorders effectively. Uh, one of the issues with that is that it results in very long wait lists um, for specialist eating disorder services, and that certainly has continued to be um, a problem. Um, but now uh, I've just finished a training just the last two days, actually, uh, with a range of mental health clinicians, and I was just uh, reflecting with them on how much that has changed. We had sort of 40 passionate uh, mental health clinicians across uh, many different disciplines, uh, working with children and adolescents, inpatient and outpatient settings, all rocking up to learn um, more about delivering evidence-based treatments. And certainly what I've seen across the system is that there are more people who have those skills and capacities and there's a lot more opportunities for education when it comes to learning about eating disorders. And certainly what we need to continue to do is to understand that it is uh, everyone's business to be treating eating disorders. It doesn't need to fall just to the specialist services. Yeah, for sure. And how does, you know, evidence-based interventions look in the private sector? Yeah, so the evidence-based um, interventions will look similar across, you know, the private and, and, and public sectors. But um, I guess what we know is... Um, certain uh, treatments work better um, for some disorders than others and for particular age groups um, over others. So for example, with our younger clients, so I see uh, younger sort of adolescent clients all the way through to, to adults. Um, but for our younger clients, um, we have very clear evidence, decades of research that shows us that interventions that involve the family and a particular form of um, family-based uh, treatment uh, is our leading evidence-based treatment and in fact that families are really our allies in the treatment of eating disorders and um, are who we need to be working uh, with in order to help uh, young people, children and adolescents um, to recover. So the outcomes for those treatments are much more effective in both the short term and the long term in achieving full recovery. In our adult population, um, the outcomes are not quite as good and we certainly need to continue on improving uh, the treatments that are available. But certainly with uh, disorders such as bulimia nervosa and also binge eating disorder, um, our leading evidence-based treatment currently is cognitive behavioural therapy, but it's a specific version of cognitive behavioural therapy that focuses on the eating, uh, on the eating disorder itself. For anorexia nervosa, um, cognitive behavioural therapy is also an effective uh, treatment, but there are other treatments that might be equally effective in some of the randomised controlled trials. Uh, some of those are called MANTRA and SSCM. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I'd love to get more into those specific interventions um, during our interview questions. But before that, I'd love to jump into a section that we would call Have You Met Bronnie? So um, we'll just be asking some more little get to know you questions that are a bit fun. So my first one for you um, is, do you have a favorite book at all or anything that you're reading at the moment? 
Oh, at the moment, my dad just handed me a book yesterday, which I've really, really started um, um, <laughs> plowing into. And it's called The Ministry of Common Sense. And it's all about how to reduce bureaucratic burden, but it's very funny. Um, so that's the one I'm, I've just picked up. Um, I just, just picked up at the moment. Um, yeah. So that's the one I've got on my, my desk at the moment next to my bed. Beautiful. Are you in, have you gotten far into that one? No, I've just gotten into the first chapter, got a bit interrupted by my children, but yeah, it's very (laughs) funny. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I'm glad that you're loving it if it's only a chapter in as well. So that's a good sign. Um, perfect. So my next one for you is movies. Uh, are you a movie person? Do you've got, do you have like a favorite movie? Well, the movie that has been most on my mind, uh, lately is actually Embrace because it's a body image, um, movie that, um, was directed by Australian of the year, Taryn Brumford. And, uh, she just, uh, I was talking about it with my children cause she's just developed a version of that movie, which is, um, called Embrace Kids, which is helping kids embrace their bodies and, um, be more accepting around their bodies. So that's probably the most, uh, that's probably the most recent. Prior to that, I went to the Barbie movie, which also loved, absolutely loved that. My daughter <laughs> and I, I got to go again. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. Did you guys all dress up in pink? She did. She absolutely Aww. did. Yeah. Aww, I managed to get my boys along too, so that was pretty good. Yeah, I feel like it's like a great movie for the family as well, but I'm glad you enjoyed that one. Um, perfect. So my next one for you is podcast. Do you listen to podcasts at all? Um, yes, I do. Um, I really love the Imperfects um, podcast. That's probably one that I um, listen to very regularly. I love, um, you know, that the clients, the hosts are very vulnerable um, in, in that. Um, so, yeah, that's probably one that I, I go back to a lot. Yeah, what's that one about? Yeah, so just really about um, uh, people opening up about their stories, um, uh, and being quite vulnerable in how they share their stories um, and some of the challenges that they've overcome or things that they've experienced in their lifetimes. Lots of famous people jump on there um, to share their stories as well. Um, But it's all about being imperfect, which I really resonate and really love because I think the best best learnings we get in life are when uh, things don't go well and we can work through that and overcome that, which is, I guess, around resilience as well. Yeah, I love podcasts that are really informative and super motivational as well and ones that like everyone can relate to. I feel like you just get so much more out of those types of podcasts. So I feel like that's a really good recommendation. Awesome. Yes, definitely so, listen to that one. Yeah, no, I'll definitely be adding that one to my list. Uh, lastly, I'd love to ask if you've got a famous role model or just anyone in your life that you might look up to. Yeah, like... um. I don't know about famous role models because um, I think probably some of the most important role models that I've had are people who I'm very close to or people who have been in my life. Um, so there's two people that um, come to mind. One is my grandfather. Like he um, just really the most humble, kind, um, you know, person. And um, whenever you were present with him, you really felt like you were the most special person in the world. Um, and uh, there was something about him because he, sort of lived till his late nineties where, um, he'd always seen things before and was able to sit back and not get caught up in sort of worry or anxiety about life events, but, um, had that big perspective that things, 
things have come before and they'll come again and we'll all get through this. So this has been a really good influence um, in my life. And the other person, um, um, well, my mum and dad, but just talking about my mum perhaps, um, yeah, she's also uh, an academic and um, she's done amazing well in, in her field. Um, but again, she's just a really compassionate person and I love to see how she manages her teams and uh, it's, yeah, not really about, you know, um, it's sort of, I, I guess what she, uh, what I've seen in her work role is um, how she really values what's inside each person and helps them shine in their, in their different roles. Beautiful. Uh, what field does she work in? Um, so uh, she is an epidemiologist and she specializes in psychotic illnesses. Oh, wow. That's super yeah. interesting. So, so has she bipolar been... disorder, schizophrenia. Yeah. Yeah. Has she been doing like a lot of her own research as well? Yes. She's very, yeah, prolific <laughs> publisher. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I feel like that would be so cool growing up with like a mum that like works in like a field that's got a lot of research that needs to be done as well because I assume you do the same as well researching yeah so I think the interesting thing about my mom and perhaps uh, another reason that I put her into to that category is that um like she sort of stayed at home with us and then had to redefine her career sort of later in life so we moved yeah. from Adelaide to Perth and then she took on a whole new career and you know to me that's like kind of a sign that you know we just we can change at any point and, um, you know, and I like that. It's sort of, I guess, related to that um, perfectionism or, you know, um, you know that idea that we can make mistakes, but we can also try new things uh, and we don't need to get stuck in thinking about ourselves in a particular way. We can really make a different choice tomorrow or a different choice, you know, next year, including when it comes to our career and that's been really empowering. Yeah, 100%. I feel like it would be so lovely to grow up with a role model and have them sort of inspire you to pursue different things no matter what like stage of life you're in. So that's really great. Awesome. So I think we can jump into our interview questions now. So my first one for you is why do you think that resilience is important in our lives? Oh, okay. So um can I ask you a question? When you when you say resilience, how do you define that? Honestly, it can be your own personal definition. So we could even start with that. What does resilience mean to you? Yeah, to me, uh, when I think about my personal resilience or the resilience that my clients show when they embark on the incredibly challenging journey of eating disorder recovery, um, resilience is something about um, continuing to um, face challenges and to keep going with difficult tasks, uh, even when they feel overwhelming, to seek support around that, um, to get up when we do make mistakes or when things don't go go well and to keep trying. So there's something um, about the continuing um, to try in the face of adverse adversity um, and developing a belief in yourself over time um, that, that, that you can do that you know, that no matter what comes your way, you know, that you can, you can face those challenges and that you can work through them. Yeah. So essentially bouncing back from all the different adversities that life might throw our way. Yeah. The one thing that we know for sure in life is that things are uncertain. So being yeah. able to tolerate that uncertainty is a very important uh, psychological factor when we think about psychological theories um, and like expecting, we just have no idea what's going to happen in the next second or next hour. So 
you know, trying not to get too caught up in thinking too far ahead or ruminating on things that have happened in the past is pretty important and just, you know, trying to be really adaptive whatever comes our way. Yeah, 100%. And I love how you brought up this idea of being adaptive because the more I talk about resilience, the more I've found that it's something that helps you prepare for things like you obviously don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after or even like after we're done with this recording like and then having that ability to be resilient and be able to bounce back is something that prepares you for anything that might come your way as well so it's a really diverse sort of attribute to have yeah and I think uh the coping as well so you know, often we're asking clients to do really challenging things in treatment. We ask them to experiment to do things that feel terrifying uh, for them. So, for example, we might be asking them to, you know, eat more regularly and then to start eating more adequately and then start to include foods that are really, really scary to eat. And our clients often hold very strong fears and beliefs around what's going to happen when they start changing their eating in those ways. They might think, well, my weight will um, go up uncontrollably and never stop. You know, or if I eat that one slice of bread, my weight will suddenly jump by five kilos. So they're very, you know, strongly held beliefs and they feel extremely anxious. So to me, the resilience is sort of around, you know, us saying, well, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen when you go and conduct that experiment. My personal belief, because I've worked with a lot of people with eating disorders, is that that might not happen, but it could. You could be the first person that happens too. But why don't we be really brave and, you know, see if you could test that out? Um, and the clients who are able to, you know, and being able to test that out and work on those fears or maybe break them down to a smaller step if that one feels too big, to me that's part of resilience. And, you know, some of that comes back to mm, maybe some of the, the the fears do come true at, at times and how can we cope with that? You know, so, uh, yeah, so to me it's more sitting around that uncertainty that we actually don't know what's mm. going to happen and that's okay. Let's find out. And let's cope regardless of the outcome. Yeah, and I guess that whole aspect of finding out what's going to happen doesn't necessarily always have to be a bad thing. Like the outcome's not always going to be bad and I guess you won't find out unless you try it. And even if the outcome is bad, at least you have that resilience so you can come back from it. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Well, before we dive further into everything, I'd love to ask you what your personal definition of binge eating is and what that looks like. Yeah, so um, so binge eating has three components. So one is it involves eating an objectively large amount of food. So that is an amount of food that other people would agree is a large amount. It's also eating it in a, a pretty brief time period. So often the definitions around two hours, although sometimes binge eating can continue to happen over the course of the day, so quite frequently. But a key aspect that differentiates it from things like uh, overeating, which we all do, is that it feels out of control. So the person, once they start to eat, they feel that they can't actually stop. And so they continue to eat more than they planned or more than they would like to. Uh, and that's really problematic because uh, because it feels so out of control, people can then end up trying to compensate for that um, in different ways. For example, using purging or driven exercise or the next day, you know, setting a plan to not eat or to restrict what they're eating. Perfect. And how does that compare to something like mindful eating? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the comparisons that's probably really important is, you know, what makes 
what what's a bend and then what's normal overeating because we all do that sometimes right so we go yeah. to christmas and you've got you know your family's uh lunch and then you have to go to your partner's dinner and we're all enjoying the food uh, and it's really normal in that context to be eating more than you feel comfortably full with but equally um, it doesn't feel out of control and it's kind of a, the, the normal expectation within that setting. It might be grandma's birthday and you've already had your lunch but then and you feel reasonably full but then it's grandma's birthday and you go and have the piece of cake. So that you might be objectively eating more than, than you expected or more that you wanted but it's kind of a nice normal thing to be doing in that context and that's all, we all do that. That's really, really uh, normal. Um, so a difference when it comes to um, binge eating uh, tends to be quite mindless. Um, and what I mean by that is that people tend to do it uh, a little bit outside their conscious awareness. So often binges might happen um, in settings where uh, individuals are not paying a lot of attention to what they're eating. So for example, eating in the car or eating in front of the TV and kind of got your focus on the TV, but you might not be noticing what you're eating, how full you're feeling, whether you actually even like what you're eating or not. Um, people tend to go back and forward between the cupboard or the fridge to grab more and more food rather than putting everything onto a plate. So mindful eating really is, um, you know, quite opposite to binge eating, which tends to be quite mindless. Um, and one of the interventions for binge eating, um, it's not the only one, but would be to, um, to to be more mindful when eating. Uh, and we can even do binge eating more mindfully, which can help to reduce binge eating episodes. So sometimes, you know, even if you kind of think that you are going to binge and that um, you feel unable to stop that, uh, then just putting all the binge food onto a plate, really slowing down, noticing the taste, the texture, the smell of the food, thinking about do I want the salted crisps or do I want something more sweet now, even that act of slowing down in the middle of a binge can be uh, really helpful in reducing the amount that you're eating but also um, the overall, um, the, the number of binges as well. Yeah, and how does this idea of binge eating affect someone's body image? What are the connections there? Yeah, and do, will we also touch on the different factors that contribute to binge eating or would you yeah uh, we definitely from... can go into those yeah for sure <laughs> yeah so um most of the people uh, are so a core uh, aspect of eating disorders for example is that there tends to be uh, an what we call an overvaluation of the importance of weight shape and control over those things and control over eating in terms of how you feel about yourself as a person. So those things become really important and they might trump um, the importance of other things in your life, like how you get on with your friends or how are you doing at work or you know other things, hobbies and interests and things like that. So when someone has an eating disorder uh, and they're trying desperately to control their eating and shape and weight uh, and then they end up binge eating, it can be extremely distressing and uh, a lot of feelings are triggered by that, including, you know, intense shame or guilt or embarrassment. Uh, and it can lead to wanting to reset that goal uh, and work even harder to control your weight and shape um, so that that doesn't happen again. Unfortunately, 
that continued uh, cycle is really problematic because we know that the more you try to control your weight and shape, the more likely you are to set yourself up uh, for episodes of binge eating. And there are a couple of ways that that happens. So one is when you're not eating enough, your body is likely to go into a state of semi-starvation or starvation. And um, that increases the risk when you're physically hungry body's deprived of particular nutrients is going to increase the risk that your body will drive you when it gets the opportunity to eat those foods. So we have a lot of uh, evidence around and research on starvation and how it impacts the body and the brain. The brain is amazing. So when it's not eating enough, when it's starved, it's going to do everything in its power to get you thinking about food again. So a lot of people say they're just preoccupied with thinking about food all the time. And I said, wow, that's, you've got a really clever brain that's allowing you to do that. Um, but it does mean, um, you know, it increases physically also the risk of, of binge eating. Um, the other thing that um, can happen is that people might have very rigid rules um, around what they can and can't eat. So they might be eating but have very rigid rules around that. And again, that can lead to more of a psychological uh, deprivation or psychological hunger around particular foods. Um, so again, those rigid dietary rules or pulling back on eating or restraining eating is extremely unhelpful because they're really hard to maintain. Inevitably, you're going to break one of the rules and then you're going to end up overeating eating something that you didn't plan to. And then a lot of people have a fairly black and white way of thinking about that. They'll say, I've blown it. You know, I may as well binge. And then they'll end up binge eating and then feeling absolutely awful about that. Yeah. And you mentioned some of the factors of binge eating before. So I'd love to dive into that so we can shape like this understanding of how it relates to body image. And maybe we can bring in some factors of body image as well, just to help understand that a bit more. Yeah. So, um, so, um, most people, uh, so binge, one of the things to understand is that binge eating can occur um, in many of the eating disorder diagnoses, including in anorexia nervosa, which most people maybe don't don't know that. So it is actually a subtype of that anorexia nervosa that involves um, people engaging in repetitive episodes of, of binging and sometimes purging, um, but also in bulimia nervosa and, of course, in um, binge eating disorder. And uh, one of the most common pathways to that is that people just aren't eating enough during the day. They're not eating enough variety. They're having big, long gaps between their meals and snacks, and they've got really strict rules around eating. So that physiological pathway, it's really important that we get on top of that one first because we know a starved brain doesn't think properly and it doesn't, and actually starvation impacts every area of our functioning so it makes people more preoccupied it makes them their mood worse it makes their anxiety worse they start getting uh, physical symptoms that can be really concerning as well like um, that might affect their heart um, you know such as dizziness and fainting and those things that can be very dangerous yeah so um, yeah so in terms of um, the body image um, that body image is actually you know Body image is kind of on the face of a, a fairly simple kind of term and we all kind of use that, um, um, I guess, a bit haphazardly sometimes and we might be referring to different things when we think about body image. 
But essentially body image refers to, I guess, how we perceive our bodies uh, and how, so our perception or how we see ourselves perhaps in the mirror or when, you know, we're looking at our bodies, but also how we think about our bodies uh, and how we feel about our bodies. And body image is maintained by a lot of different um, factors. Um, there are a lot of behaviours um, that keep body image concerns going, for example, um, such as repeatedly checking your body, comparing your body to other people, or on the flip side of that, when you avoid looking at your body altogether or avoid situations in which you think you might be judged because of the way of your body. Yeah, and do you think that like body image affects people who struggle with binge eating differently at all? I'm not sure if there's any... Um, I'm not sure if there's any clear research uh, around that. Um, I suppose the way I could answer that is that binge eating crosses over all the eating disorder diagnoses. And actually, when we think about eating disorders, although in the DSM-5, we do have our different categories of eating disorders uh, in general, and there's a couple that don't fit into this, but for you know anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, um, for example, um, body image uh, can often be part of all of, of those uh, disorders uh, and not just affect people who are binge eating, but is really um, a core component um, of eating disorders. We think about it more so as an overvaluation um, of eating and weight and shape. And then there might be particular um, body image behaviors that contribute to that or ways of thinking that we need to work on in treatment as well. Interesting. So for someone who might be going through like binge eating or other eating disorders or even struggling with their body image, what are some signs that someone may need to seek out help? Yeah, I think if, um, uh, you know, what I would say in answer to that is, yeah, there's a lot of uh, shame when it comes to any of the eating disorders, not just binge yeah. eating. Um, and uh, that can lead to not seeking help for an eating disorder. So if you have any concerns around the way that you're eating, I would strongly encourage you to go and uh, book an appointment with a medical practitioner and just mention uh, some of those concerns to the medical um, practitioner. But certainly things that we might be looking for are things like um, having very strict rules around eating, going for long periods uh, without eating, feeling guilty uh, around eating and uh, maybe noticing you're spending a lot of time looking at your body in the mirror or feeling bad about the way your body um, looks, uh, anything to do with uh, sort of purging behaviours, vomiting, self-induced vomiting, use of laxatives or engaging in really driven or compulsive exercise. Those can be really uh, dangerous behaviours and uh, eating disorders we know um, although they're mental illnesses, they do come along with significant physical health risks. So if you're engaging in any of those behaviours, then it's really important to go and ask for help and have at least a medical assessment so someone can uh, ensure that you're safe. But um, my, my main advice is if you have any concerns, whether it's to do with the way you're eating or other eating behaviours or how you feel about your um, body, to ask for help because there's certainly some excellent uh, interventions available um, and and I want to hold a lot of hope for people that you don't need to suffer with those things and there are people around who can provide support. 
Yeah, amazing. And I feel like especially for younger people um, going through this, it's really hard to come forward with this, especially if it's something that you have to tell your parents about in order to get that medical help or see a doctor. So how would you advise younger people, for example, under the age of 18, struggling with this to, you know, want to come forward, you know, when they're in school and they probably see everyone around them being so normal and probably not having to experience this stuff? How can they feel comfortable with admitting that they need help or something's not right? Yeah, so there are some really good online um, websites that you can go and visit. There's um, chatbots that you can engage with. Um, Butterfly and the NEDC are really excellent starting um, places if you're unsure about what's going on, if you want to seek support. Um, and Butterfly, for example, has lots of online chat supports, um, so you can seek help through that. Um, but certainly um, I would say the eating disorders are really uh, common. They affect uh, around 1.3 million Australians are currently diagnosed. There's probably five to six million, you know, who are undiagnosed. So it's actually um, uh, more common than you think. And it, um, it's really important to ask for help or to at least have a medical assessment. Um, if you're at an age where you can go to the GP uh, or perhaps just, you know, tell mum or dad or someone that you trust. It could be a teacher um, that that you might be struggling or that you're concerned about the way your body looks. Yeah, for sure. And with something like binge eating, is it something that cannot always be seen expressed outwardly in, you know, like a physical way? Yeah, and that's true, um, Joanna, for all of the eating disorders. So we often think we can see an eating disorder, but actually that's really um, not the case. So eating disorders affect people of all ages, or genders, or socioeconomic um, backgrounds, um, and um, and and you can't see, and body sizes and shapes. So you can't see from someone's body size or shape, or even if they look happy on the outside, whether they might be struggling on the inside with an eating disorder. So um, that's really important. And if you are concerned about someone, um, it's good just to sort of check in and just ask them if they're okay as well. Um, if you've got someone in your life that you're worried about. There's a lot of uh, support groups also for parents and families that are available. Um, we There's one at the Centre for Clinical Interventions in Western Australia. There's online support groups that you can access um, through um, Butterfly uh, and Eating Disorders Family Australia. Families Australia also has support groups that you can access. Uh, and Body Esteem in Western Australia also has just drop-in groups where you can, um, um, parents or families or other support people, can just drop in for a coffee and a chat um, and talk to other people who um, might have ideas about starting those conversations. The main thing I would say for families is to get as educated as you can if you're concerned about someone, you know, a child or another family member. Beautiful. And on the topic of strategies, I'd love to shift over to looking at some strategies to improve body image. Yeah, so um, when it comes to body image, um, so although we've got that sort of general kind of definition, you know, it's how we perceive ourselves, how we think about ourselves, um, and it's also some of the behaviours, one of the things that we will really try and do when we're working with uh, individuals with eating disorders or body image concerns is to try and work out what are the specific things for this person that are keeping these body image concerns going um, because that might be really, really different. Um, for each person. 
So one of the things I'll always do is talk to um, a person about their perception. So provide um, education on how we perceive the world. And actually our perception is really, really inaccurate. Uh, in addition, nobody perceives the world in the same way. So the way I see my body will never match how other people see see my body. Um, and we can do lots of, um, there's been lots of research uh, on perception that shows kind of particularly uh, perceptual biases that we make um, uh, and also how where we focus our attention, what we pay attention to really matters because um, when we focus on parts of our body that we don't like, they're actually going to appear larger than they, than they might be um, and uh, you're going to notice more flaws and tune into aspects of your body that you, if you tune into aspects of body of your body that you dislike, um, you're going to find them uh, and they're going to make you feel really bad about yourself. So um, so perception is really, really important. Uh, understanding attention, um, looking at your body image behaviors. So excessive checking or comparisons um, has a different intervention than the clients who are more likely to avoid or cover up their bodies, for example. Um, so those things, those things are really important, uh, as well as just building a really big life that works on valuing yourself in other areas that have nothing to do with the way that you look. So it, may, it might be how you are as a person, or how you are as a, you know how you are as a friend, yeah. how you spend your time, your hobbies, your interests, the fact that you're a, a person who can try something new and not do well and get back up. That Those might be things that um, we try and get clients to focus on. Yeah, for sure. And I love that first point you brought up that we often see our bodies in a lot more of a harsher light than other people might see it in. And it's very easy for someone to be like, oh, how did they not see my body in the way I see it? Like, it's so obvious that it just looks this flawed. But I feel like we're one of our, like, we're really harsh critics on ourselves. Um, but sometimes it is hard to, you know, process that idea while we're going through something as well and be like, oh, you know what, people aren't going to see it in the way I see it. I'm perfectly fine kind of thing. So how do you sort of even begin to break down those sort of thoughts that come into your head and sort of filter it as being not as bad as you think it is. Yeah. So um, again, it kind of um, comes back to looking what the, per looking initially trying to find out like, is your body image the same all the time or does it fluctuate? Cause actually it's body image is quite unstable. So sometimes we think about, you know, really global terms like, body neutrality or body positivity or body dissatisfaction. But I don't know anyone really who has a stable body image. In fact, body image fluctuates, you know, through the course of a session when I'm with a client, through the course of a day, through the course of months or over our lifetimes. And um, that might have absolutely nothing to do with actual physical changes in your body. So we need to start getting a lot of in uh, education in initially around what actually contributes to you feeling dissatisfied with your body. Um, so even things like your mood can affect your body image. You might have had that experience yourself, Joanna, where you've, I don't know, tried an outfit on at a shop and you're like, mm -hmm. I look amazing, get home, maybe a week later you go to put that on to go out and you're like, not quite as good as yeah. I thought in the shop, right? <laughs> yeah. 
100%. Even though nothing has changed with your body, you haven't suddenly gained five kilos, you haven't, you know, your stomach hasn't suddenly um, um, popped out or anything like that. So we all understand that experience, um, you know, when it comes to body image, which means that our body image actually isn't just about our bodies. There's a lot of other things going on when it comes to looking at our bodies. Another yeah. example is when it comes to looking in the mirror. So in um, when working with clients with eating disorders, I always ha- I sort of have my mirror, which we sort of introduce maybe halfway to later in treatment once we've established those nutritional changes and got on top of uh, starvation because that's really important because we know a starved brain isn't going to be very good at um, uh, perception anyway or paying attention. Um, so we need to nourish the brain and then we can get on and do some of the body uh, image work. But one of the things I would look at in the mirror with clients is saying, do you think that that is an accurate um, image of you? Uh, and most people say, yeah, that's me. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll go up to the mirror and say, okay, well, why don't we just measure it up? Uh, and we can sort of put a little post-it on the top of your head and at the bottom of your, your feet and then a, a post-it where your two sides are and get like a little image. And what we find is, the size of that image is tiny. It's actually a mini me image because mirrors are absolutely not accurate. In fact, when you stand next to many mirrors, they're not even your height and yet you see your whole body in it and think that you're seeing your body at the size that it is. So we start to kind of think about, huh, well, did you see a mini me when you were looking in the mirror Uh, or did you see yourself? Uh, And the client will say, no, I just saw me. So our brains do a lot of interpreting and thinking about the the actual image that hits our retina uh, and it feels very compelling. We think that that's accurate uh, and most clients are seeing themselves as much larger than they are when they're looking in the mirror. We know that this is true for clients with eating disorders, individuals with eating disorders. They tend to overestimate their body um, size um, but actually that image is actually smaller um, for, for all of us. Um, So we want to work on on that side of things. And then we want to think, well, how are we going to start to change that? So there's a a lot of interventions we do with a mirror, for example. um, And some of those would be uh, sort of working from the top of your head down to your toes then all the way back up to the top of your head, but trying to describe your body in really neutral, non-judgmental terms, which is a really hard task to do. Yeah, for sure. And what do some of those terms look like? Because I'm trying to think of some now and I feel like all the ones that come to my head would be very judgmental. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, and we were at a, um, when we were at our training this week, the same um, happened for our clinicians who were getting trained. They were like, this is really hard. I'm just used to being really self-critical and judging myself when I look at my body. In fact, it kind of feels almost... uh, you know, vain or something to not be doing that. Now we weren't asking them to do a positive description of their body, but just um, a really accurate description. So, you know, starting from the top of um, their head, um, we might say, oh, you know, describe uh, as you would to an alien or someone who didn't know what those judgmental terms mean, what you're describing. So we might say, you know, I can notice um, the brown hair on top of um, uh, my head there is uh, a, a patch of darkness on the left as it goes closer to my ears um, 
there is a few wispy bits that fly away on the top and then we kind of work our way down so it's a really weird thing to do yeah uh, and if you want to get more um um if you want to get more um practiced at doing that and if your if your listeners would like to know a bit more about how to do that there is a self-help module um that is freely available from the center for clinical interventions um it's in uh, a workbook called break free from ed uh, and it's the body checking module so it's called body image part one and it's about body checking and it talks to you, to you about how to adopt a non-judgmental um, attitude towards looking at yourself in the mirror. Um, the other thing that we uh, do is to um, do a functional appraisal of the body. So thinking about, well, what does your hair do for you? And what do your eyes do for you and your nose? And instead of uh, critiquing your body, um, thinking about the amazing function of your body instead, which most people don't do, um, so, you know, for example, these arms allow me to embrace my children when they get home from school. And these legs walked me around South Africa when I was 19 and trying to be really independent. You know, so the, and this, you know, these eyes let me look at the beautiful ocean in Perth, you know, on a daily basis. So yeah. kind of really changing how we think about our body. Our bodies are amazing. They're amazing vehicles that we drive around in every day and they help us perform the essential tasks that we need to do. And we can't really escape them. We can't avoid them. So we really need to be working towards accepting them. Um, so sometimes for people, they can get to a more positive state, um, you know, kind of um, place with their body. But in terms of eating disorder recovery, we really aim for just neutrality. You know, just body acceptance is kind of where we're trying to go. Yeah, and the more you've talked about it, the more I'm realising how important perception is here and sort of recalibrating that perception we have of our bodies. Yeah, definitely. So we sometimes um, do some interventions around that. So, for example, we'll ask people to draw what they perceive their body to look like on a big piece of um, butcher's paper and it can be quite... Um, um, surprising to see the perceptual distortion. Sometimes people, for example, might draw a very accurate head and shoulders, but they get to their stomach and they perceive it as much, much larger, 20 times larger than it actually is. But that's actually how they see their body. So then we'll look at correcting that with them. Um, but I think the main thing to keep in mind is actually all of us, none of our perception in any area, including our bodies, um, is accurate. It's just our version of reality and it's influenced by a lot of things that have nothing to do with the image that's actually hitting our ret retina. Probably the other part of um, body image work, which is really, really important, is to think about what am I missing out on? You know, what am I not doing because of the way that I feel about my body? Yeah. So um, a lot of people will, for example, cover up, even in summer, they might be wearing loose fitting baggy clothing um or not going to social events you know things like balls or weddings are pretty common because they might have an increased focus on you know dressing up or you know looking a particular way might miss out on those important events or coming up to summon now a really common one at the moment is well i can't possibly be wearing my bathers and going to places like my friend's house where there's a pool or to the beach because of the way that i feel about my body 
Yeah. So the other thing that we're trying to do is help people get to a place where they can have a full life, you know, and accept their body in whatever, you know, size or shape it is as being their body and not let that get in the way of, you know, being able to jump into the Indian Ocean and feel the crisp water on your body uh, and laugh with your friends and flick water at them and all those other things. Yeah. And how do you think that, you know, developing a more positive perception of our bodies and a more realistic or like you said neutral perception of our bodies might help increase our resilience when it comes to dealing with food related topics what we know from um, the research is that body image concerns you know feeling uh, have you know having a negative attitude to your body actually is really problematic so having those uh, that body dissatisfaction actually um you know predicts um, more depression increased rates of eating disorders prospectively you know five years later we also know um, that it contributes to increased likelihood of actually doing things that are um, out of line with the way that you want your life to be so it increases risk of um, binge eating for example um, not feeling good about yourself uh, and we also know that um, if we don't address it in treatment, for example, that people who are still left with body image concerns at the end of um, evidence-based treatments, such as family-based treatment and cognitive behavioral therapy, are at increased likelihood um, of experiencing uh, relapse or not achieving full recovery. So we do know that there are really, really important um, um, aspects of addressing that in terms of your overall mental health, but also uh, eating disorder recovery or reducing the risk of developing um, an eating disorder. So to me, it's an incredibly important part of what we do when we're working with clients. Um, it sometimes can take up, you know, half of half of the treatment. Um, uh, and uh, I think that one of the challenges is that we live in a society where it's really normal to not like your body to be self-critical. You sort of noted that yourself when I was trying to do a neutral description, but that's really normal even for people who don't have eating disorders. Yeah. So what we try to do in a way is to inoculate people against um, some of the messages that they're receiving constantly through social media, through friends, through families, um, to be able to say, yeah, you probably are going to have negative outcomes and that's okay. You can cope with that as well. But how can we make sure that you, you can cope with it? You can tolerate any distress that comes with um, those situations and live the life that you really want to be living. Yeah, beautiful. Well, I think that's the perfect way to leave off that section. And I feel like talking about all of this and talking about how it re leads to resilience as well is really important because I feel like at the end of the day, all these strategies that we're talking about helps build resilience and helps overcome adversity and shows you that when you get through these tougher times, that even though it's really uncomfortable while you're going through it, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you say a light there reminds me of something I've heard from a lot of clients. Um, so uh, compared to other disorders that I also treat, you know, OCD, anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, um, there's a lot of ambivalence and fear around giving up an eating disorder. Um, and it's an incredibly challenging treatment in that, in that sense because it's really scary. So we're always asking um, clients um, to do things that feel really hard. Some of those might be that you need to regain weight because you're underweight and you're malnourished. Um, and one of the things that I often hear when we get to the end of treatment, it's really hard for people to get all the way to the end of the treatment, 
um, but is that at the end of addressing these really difficult, you know, challenging beliefs, the way they feel about their body and all the eating disorder behaviors, they often say, I actually feel lighter, <laughs> um, which I think, you know, is a really interesting outcome. And I've heard that many times from clients with eating disorders. Yeah, that's beautiful. I feel like that's a really nice way to put it, I guess. You feel lighter despite having given up, you know, an eating disorder or having overcome it. That's a really interesting way to put it. Yeah, I think the weight of all the thoughts and rules and the rigidity of an eating disorder and feeling bad about yourself all the time to get through that and uh, into a place where you're not hooking into um, the those concerns uh, and you've managed to normalize your eating and establish a, a better relationship with food uh, is a, like a really wonderful place and it's incredibly difficult to get there. Um, and, you know, I really commend, like I've seen a lot of patients and I see how incredibly hard they work. And I think that is resilience, you know, doing eating disorder recovery is embodies resilience, you know, as part of that. So now we'll get into our questions from the audience. So we've got quite a few here and I think they cover a really wide range of just questions that anyone would really have from an outside perspective looking into things dealing with binge eating eating disorders and body image so my first one for you is how does practicing mindful eating differ from traditional approaches to diet and nutrition yeah so um what we know is that diets absolutely do not work so we shouldn't be dieting in fact we have so much evidence that shows that in the short term, if even if there is weight loss, which many people can't achieve, that people end up at a higher weight after they diet. And there's some really beautiful um, illustrations of that that's called dieting up the scale. So you see people who have been dieting for you know um, over the course of their lifetime, their their sort of body resets at a higher point each time they go on a diet. Um, so what we want to be establishing is a regular. Uh, uh, nutritional intake we want that to be really adequate and we want to include a large variety of food groups uh, without getting too caught up in you know the specifics of that Um, so mindful eating and mindfulness is obviously a really highly effective technique for mental health but when we apply it to eating to me it's just about uh, tuning into the experience of eating without judging that experience as either being good or bad. So it's um, in eating disorder recovery, for example, when I'm asking uh, individuals to try a new food that they might have been avoiding or it might feel really scary, uh, they often stuck in the anxiety about including that. But I'll say, what was it like to eat hot chips? You haven't eaten hot chips in 10 years. Uh, and then they'll have to sort of think about that in a slightly different way. And they might say, actually, it was really tasty or I enjoyed it. What did you know about notice about how long you felt full for um, after eating or how satisfied you were or how tasty the food was? So really tuning into the experience of eating. Um, you know, we sometimes people use that word intuitive eating or mindful eating um, is incredibly important. We can tune into when we're, when we're done, when we're feeling full you know, I'm done. I don't need to eat the second serve or maybe I'm still hungry and I need to have a serve and no, no one's eating, no one else is eating that, but they're not me. So this is my body and I need a second serve because my body's saying it's still hungry. 
Perfect. And just in terms of, you mentioned mindless eating before. So when it comes to mindless eating, you're not really thinking about the food that you're putting into your mouth. So it's kind of just happening. You're not really processing any of the sensations. Is that how it differs to mindful eating? Yeah. So when I think about mindfulness or mindlessness, I think it uh, you know really comes down to where you're focusing your attention. So if you're focusing on the TV show and you're not actually paying attention to the food, uh, then you're more likely to be eating mindlessly. And, you know, that can be less enjoyable, but it can also lead to overeating or undereating because you think you might have eaten more than, than you actually have. So, yeah, I think that really comes down to um, the importance of attention and where we focus our attention and being really present, uh, you know, in the moment when we are eating. And that's why we know that things like family meals are really uh, important uh, and really protective and actually part of family-based treatment is, you know, the focus on the family meal. Um, but, uh, you know, where we all sit down and actually just enjoy a meal together. Uh. Yeah, and it's such an interesting topic as well because I feel like as society has progressed, we've found like different ways to multitask while we're eating, whether that be, you know, watching something on our laptops, watching TV, talking to people or, you know, eating while we're on the move. Like it really takes away from this sense of like mindful eating, I guess. So do you think it's really important to make eating this thing that you do with purpose as opposed to trying to fit it in with all these other different things you're trying to do at the same time? Yeah, so when we um, are working with individuals with eating disorders or we, we tried this in our training recently with our mental health cushions, but one of the things we ask people to do is actually to monitor what they're eating, when they're eating uh, and where they are when they're eating um, to see some of those patterns and how they're impacting, um, you know, on eating disorder behaviours or restriction. Um, so we do know that sitting down and paying attention to what you're eating and um being mindful around the experience of eating um, is really helpful. Um, but also, and it takes away that mindlessness. So it means that, uh, you know, when you're more aware of the way that you're eating, then uh, you're more likely to eat in a way that feels good and you're less likely to eat in a way that either goes towards restriction or uh, binge eating. Perfect. Well, my next question for you deals with binge eating. Now, we've talked about what binge eating is, but this question asks, what are some of the con common triggers that contribute to binge eating and why people decide to start binge eating? Yeah, so um, by far, the most important factor when it comes to, um, to binge eating is not eating enough during the day. Uh, which leads to a state of starvation. Uh, and then when your body is starving, it's going to drive you to do anything that it can to prevent um, starvation. And that means when it gets access to food, it's going to want you to eat a lot of that and you might experience a sense of being out of control. Now, that's a really normal adaptive body that does that. So, you know, and it can feel extremely distressing because <clears throat> it's exactly what someone has not wanted to do. But I think we also need to recognize that, that that's actually a really good body that's driving you to do that and saying it's actually not healthy to be going for long periods of the day without eating. It's important to give your body enough food and to feed it regularly throughout the day and particularly carbohydrates. So feeding your body carbohydrates regularly, um, that fuels our bodies, but it also fuels our brains. And our brains can't store carbohydrates for long periods of time. 
And that means we need to give it them, you know, uh, several times a day in order to keep our brains working um, properly. So definitely, you know, the eating side of things is key and the first thing that we work on in recovery. Um, then we have sort of our rigid rules uh, as the kind of second component. So being really strict and that leads to more of a psychological deprivation. So most people when they binge end up binging on the food that they most don't want to eat. So it's like I can't eat cake and then often cake is the thing that they'll end up binging on. Uh, and that sort of makes sense because as soon as we say no to our brain, it wants to do that thing. So there's some psychology yeah. experiments that show that, you know, if you say don't think about pink elephants, you'll think about the pink elephants. Um, so And it's the same with the food. Your brain will start thinking about it and then when you see it, you'll, you'll want to eat it uh, and then that can also trigger uh, a binge. And then a third factor, which is really important, um, is, is mood triggers. So sometimes... Um, you know, even if you are eating enough or having good variety, uh, you might uh, find that there are particular mood states that trigger sort of binge eating episodes. Uh, sometimes a binge can uh, be associated with positive feelings. You know, I get to eat lots of different things that I really, really enjoy and it's the only time I feel good, um, you know, in the day. And often it's to do with negative feelings. Um, so feeling low or down and then sort of having that all or nothing thinking, well, I just, you know, I may as well go all in, I'm, uh, you know, and lots of negative self-critical thoughts that go with that. Yeah. And on the line of negative thinking, it leads perfectly into my next question, actually. Uh, what role does self-compassion play in binge eating recovery and how can individuals cultivate more of this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um <clears throat> I think acceptance and self-compassion are kind of uh, related um, and, you know, stepping back from it being specifically related uh, to, to binge eating because I think this is applicable to all aspects of eating disorders, not just, um, not just the binge eating component. Um, but I think one thing to, to hold in mind is it's really common to engage in episodes of binge eating. In fact, binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder and it, it makes up more than 50% of diagnoses are for people with binge eating disorder. If you're actually presenting with an eating disorder, if you're finding you're becoming um, really concerned, uh, you know, about repeated binge eating episodes and it's impacting your life, then definitely, you know, ask you to go and get help um, with that. Um, Self-compassion is, is really, really important. Um, and I think part of that is sort of getting to a point where we can say, well, you know, this is my body. And it might not look like that person's body, you know, or, or you know, my friend yeah. or that person over there or, the, you know, someone on social media. But it is the only body that we get. And uh, just like our height, we might have a limited control over how much we can change our height. Maybe we could put on high heels. I personally yeah. find them really uncomfortable after a while. <laughs> so I'm going to rip them off. But there's a limit to what we can do uh, to change our height. And that's also actually the case for for our weight. A lot of, you know, that is genetically determined. Uh, and in uh, some cases, the only way you can change that is um, by developing disordered eating or disordered sort of exercise behaviours. So it's really about sort of getting to a point where we say, look, this is my body and how can I have the best life in this amazing body that I've been given, um, even if it doesn't quite fit what I would like it to look like, what I think should think, what I think, you know, um, others um you know would prefer um and the other part of that is that 
we sometimes, uh, you know, specifically focus on uh, developing uh, compassion with with clients. We use um, particular techniques within cognitive behavioural therapy, um, where we look at early experiences related to to you know not feeling good about your body, and we try to shift some of the beliefs that have developed from those early experiences, um, and then start to cultivate some new ways of thinking. So what if what if we started to you know, develop a new balanced way of thinking that says, I am enough, I'm healthy. You know, how would you live your life if you really 100% believed that you were enough just as you are? What would you do differently at work? What would you do differently with your friends? What would you do differently with the way you dress or the way that you eat? And then we'll start to plan very clear um, sort of uh, behavioral changes that the um, individuals can make um, to help them to act in line with that new way of thinking. And it's really difficult to challenge those really old negative core beliefs. Um, in the uh, Break Free from ED workbook, there's a module on core beliefs um, that your listeners could go to, but we also have some modules specifically around uh, developing self-compassion Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I feel like self-compassion is such an important topic. And it's so simple as well, just this concept of self-compassion. But I feel like it takes a lot of effort and a lot of work and a lot of reiteration and just keeping at it to actually, you know, properly instill that into your life. So super important that we talked about that. Um, my last question for you is something that's been popularized a lot by popular culture, I feel, and that's this idea of cheat days. So how do you approach the idea of a cheat day? Is it something that's legitimate? Is that something we should incorporate into our lives, especially if we tend to restrict ourselves from eating all those things classified as typically nasty or unhealthy for us? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose I hold quite a strong belief that we shouldn't be dieting and that all foods are okay and that there are no good or bad foods. So to me, there are no two days because I can choose whatever I like, whenever I like. The main thing for me is tuning into how that makes my body feel. So, you know, Mm -hmm. when I eat a good range of protein and carbohydrates and fats and I also have the slice of cake, does that make me feel better than, you know, when I just you know, eat something else that only has one of the food groups in it. Um, But also, if everyone's doing that and it's Christmas, I'm going to join in because that's going to be the most enjoyable thing and that's going to feel good and it's Christmas and I wanted to be doing that and Mm -hmm. um, be part of that. So to me, there's no place for cheat days because there's nothing that I'm cheating myself out of um, because everything's allowed. There is no rules around, you know, what I can and can't include. It's just me tuning into how those things uh, make me feel. Um, But really there is nothing good and nothing bad it's just food perfect I feel like that's such a mantra right there and such a great and strong mindset to adopt as well so thank you for sharing that with us now that also brings us to our last section for today which is our open mic section so here I'm just going to open up the floor for you to talk about anything that you would like to it could be about today's topic or it could just be about anything that you could be working on at the moment as well Amazing. Thank you. Um, yes, I mentioned to you that I wasn't quite prepared for this before. So I'll just <laughs> jump in now and give it a crack. Um, yeah. So one of the things, oh, I'll just start that one again because I just touched my head. But so one of the things that uh, I'm really uh, keen on at the moment is 
just making sure that the really high quality evidence-based tools that we know are effective in reducing symptoms of an eating disorder or improving um, body image are more accessible uh, to more people. Uh, and we've been experimenting this within um, my private practice at Morgan Psychology. Um, and uh, one of the things that we have developed is uh, eating disorder uh, recovery kits uh, that can be delivered to your door at the time that you ask for help. And uh, inside the boxes are kind of the key tools that anyone with an eating disorder, regardless of what stage they're at or what their eating disorder diagnosis is, but the three key tools um, that they might need to to get started on recovery, uh, and the responses um, you know have been fantastic from um, clients around uh, the utility of that, but also just it being sort of non-threatening um, and I guess inviting a change without it feeling so scary to change. Uh, so that's one of the things um, that I just kind of wanted to mention. Um, but the second uh, thing that's probably just worth mentioning is just um, how important it is to be working uh, with people affected um, by the difficulties uh, when we are innovating and like working with consumers around their experiences of what they need. So in addition to the recovery uh, kits, we're also developing a digital application um, that provides immediate education and intervention for individuals with eating disorder that they can access, you know, in the palm of their hand. So they might be in a rural location, not have access to someone with specialist knowledge, they might just not be ready to go and see someone, but, you know, be ready to at least start learning something about uh, eating disorders or body image or binge eating. Um, uh, or, you know, um, yeah, or it might be used alongside working with a professional, um, but just the importance of having uh, our consumers uh, be involved in that process um, has been uh, amazing because, that lived experience um, in terms of recovery and what's needed and how things need to sound in, in, in order to invite change is incredibly important. Um, so eating disorders are like really challenging, they're scary kind of things to overcome and uh, our consumers have taught me so much, um, the clients that I've worked with and their families. Um, so they've really taught me as much as I've taught them in working in the field. Beautiful. And on the lines of education, do you think that for people who aren't ready to reach out yet and admit that they need help, could education be like a good segue into that? The more they learn about what they might be going through, the more inclined they might be to reach out for help? Education is an incredibly important um, part of recovery. So it forms a lot of um, a basis of our evidence-based treatments. Um, so anything you can do to get educated about eating disorders is excellent. But I would put a bit of a warning that, you know, be mindful of where the information is coming from. So go to the really trusted and evidence-based, you know, websites um, to gather that information. So um, the Centre for Clinical Interventions has excellent information. Um, and National Eating Disorder Collaboration, Butterfly, those are all excellent places that you can go for information within um, Australia uh, and just be mindful of what you're seeing uh, in social media uh, and check you know um, check uh, how helpful that content is or where where the content's coming from so be a bit curious if it's not on an evidence-based site around where those ideas are coming from. 
Perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I feel like that's the perfect sign off for today's episode. And you've left us with some amazing tools and strategies that we can use ourselves and also just things that we can access online that makes, you know, dealing with this so easy and accessible and less scary because there are so many platforms and so many methods to get help from. So thank you so much for that. And I would love to ask for those of us who want to find out a bit more about you, where can they go? Uh, You can have a look on uh, my website. Hopefully we can attach uh, the link to that. Uh, And then uh, in scientific journals, um, we'll have a link to some of the publications, um, but certainly I can provide the link to the website. We're currently setting up a new website um, at morganpsychology.au where we're really trying to Uh, introduce innovations around how we really uh, deliver um, high quality interventions to people with body image um, and eating disorders um, as well as anxiety and depressive disorders you know and the point that you need help. Amazing well thank you so much Bronnie for coming on today and having such an insightful discussion with me about a topic like I said that can never be talked enough talked like enough about so thank you so much for cultivating such a safe space to do that. Joanna, thank you so much for your interest in eating disorders and body image and yeah it was great to join you amazing well for everyone listening thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you guys next time you have been listening to bouncing back the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by the life management science labs listen to episodes from lmsl's 10 life management perspectives on apple podcasts google podcasts Spotify, YouTube, or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, pr.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Joanna. Thanks for tuning in.